Let's go ahead and get our Bibles out. We're back in the Gospel of John, John chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the Bible in the pew in front of you. You're also welcome to take that home if you want to use it and read it. If you're using that Black Pew Bible, you'll be in page 889. John chapter 4, starting in verse 43. I'll read, please follow along with me. After two days, he, that would be Jesus, departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him. And told him that his son was recovering. So they asked him the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. And the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed. And all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen? Before I became a pastor, I fancied myself as something of an artist. Over the... Such a strong response. That's not even a joke. Over the years, I've dabbled in all the different arts. Documentary filmmaking and music and poetry and photography, and I've managed to excel in none of them. But the closest I probably got to being good in any one art form was probably that of photography, Uh, particularly street photography. I loved street photography. Rather than trying to create magic, which is what you do with normal photography, whether you go out to the farm and take pictures or you have a photo shoot, shoot in like a studio, there you're trying to create the magic, you know, pose like this. And with street photography, you just try to capture the magic. You have to train your eye to see the magic and then hopefully... You can get it in time. In the art of street photography, it's not for the faint of heart. There are a lot of different factors, a lot of moving pieces. There's a lot to overcome. There's inclement weather. There's constantly changing lighting conditions. There's the human element. Can I walk up and put this camera in someone's face and take a picture without asking their permission? The best photographers have really good equipment, and they know how to use it well. But even world-class photographers will tell you that sometimes they have to create a bit of magic on the back end, in the editing room. Sometimes you 
take a picture and the settings in your camera are off or the angle is off or the framing is off. And so you have to edit a good shot into a great shot. One of the main issues that I had to deal with in street photography was the soft shot. It's where you take a picture, you think it looks great, but you are slightly out of focus. Well, what do you do with that when the picture is blurry or hazy when you pull it up on your computer? Well, there are a lot of tips and tricks, a lot of ways that you can handle a soft shot. But when I was a brand new photographer, I only had one tool in my toolbox, and that was increase the contrast. If you've ever, if you take a picture with your phone, you probably just like scroll through all the presets, right? That's how you edit your photos. But if you were to edit your photos, you know, like a photographer, there are all these little knobs and buttons that you can turn and push and try to fix your photograph that isn't quite perfect. And one of them is contrast. And the reason why you use contrast in order to fix a blurry photo is because of the principle that contrast creates clarity. There's just something about it. I can't explain it to you. I don't know the technique behind it, but there's something about increasing the contrast of a photo that makes it look less blurry and more sharp. Now, if you go back to my early pictures, which I would encourage you not to do, Uh, you can see that I only had one tool in my toolbox. Increase the contrast. That's what I did to every picture I took to try to make it look better. Now, as I got better at photography, as I learned new tips and tricks and I learned more advanced techniques, I realized that most of the techniques available in order to fix a blurry photo still involve some kind of fixing the contrast, elevating the contrast, just more sophisticated ways of doing that. Now, I learned this principle, contrast creates clarity. I learned it in photography, but if you move outside of the realm of photography, you'll see that this principle applies to many other areas of life. If you hold two similar yet distinct things next to each other, that could be an object, it could be an idea or whatever, you tend to see the similarities there more than the differences, right? But when you hold two contrasting things next to each other, a kind of clarity emerges. So just to use one example, consider the holiness of God. As you look at the holiness of God and you become blown away by how God is other, how he is distinct, how he is pure in a way that you are not, you begin to see your own sinfulness. And the contrast between God's holiness and your sinfulness creates a kind of clarity about what grace means in the gospel. The contrast creates the clarity. Now, we saw this principle in last week's sermon, contrast creating clarity. We contrasted the woman at the well with Nicodemus, right? And we saw a tremendous amount of clarity about what Jesus was doing there in Samaria by way of that contrast. We're going to do the same thing this morning. We're going to use contrast to create clarity, but I want you to know that I'm not just injecting contrast into this text in order to preach a better sermon. I think it's right here in the text. I think John built it in, inspired by the Holy Spirit, as he was writing this text, so that we would have a greater clarity as we read. So, the first contrast point that we're going to look at this morning is the contrast between Jesus' ministry in Galilee and his ministry in Samaria. I've got four points for you this morning. That's point number one, Samaria versus Galilee. I'll give you the other points as we go. But first, let me pray. Father God, we do need clarity. Our vision is so hazy. 
sin and the concerns and the anxieties of this world weigh us down. The traditions of our fathers, the baggage we bring with us. But God, your spirit can help us see, truly see, what we need in order to worship you in spirit and truth. So God, we pray, we ask, we beg for your help this morning. And we know that we have it because all of the promises of God in the gospel are yes in Christ Jesus. So as we go to your word, Lord, help us. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. So point number one, Samaria versus Galilee. We're going to pick back up in verse 43. Let's, let's go back and look there again. After two days, he departed for Galilee. Now, you probably remember from last week's sermon that Jesus' original plan was to travel from Judea in the south to Galilee in the north, but in order to do that, he had to pass through this middle land known as Samaria. And uh, when he got to Samaria, he saw tremendous gospel fruit. He had the conversation with the woman at the well. She went back and told the townspeople. The townspeople invited Jesus to come in with them. He taught them the word. They believed in the word. A, A tremendous amount of people were saved. And so Jesus' travel plans had to be adjusted. We see here that Jesus stayed there in Samaria for two days. But as this morning's text begins, we see that Jesus says, hey, thanks for the hospitality, but it's time for me to, you know, pack up and head out. Now, in order to really understand what's happening in this morning's text, we need to review what we know about the place where Jesus just spent two days, the land of Samaria. We learned last week that according to the first century Jew, Samaria was a land of half-breed heretics. These people did not believe the Bible. They intermarried with pagans. They worshipped at a different temple in a different place, not the holy ground. They committed hate crimes against the Jews during Passover and more. So if ever there was a place where one might expect the Messiah to be utterly rejected, it would be in Samaria. But that's not what happened. Go back and look at chapter 4, verses 41 and 42. And many more, and that's in Samaria, believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So they received Jesus, and this is, of course, to put it mildly, quite unexpected. You have to remember, friends, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, and yet as he goes to his own people over and over again, they reject him. And John told us that was going to happen all the way back at the beginning. In John chapter 1, we see this. He came to his own, and his own do not receive him. So that's the pattern that we're going to continue to see all the way throughout John's gospel. So Jesus goes to his own, to the Jews. They reject him. But then he goes to the Samaritans, his enemies, and they receive him. That's weird. But maybe that's going to change as we get deeper into John's gospel. Maybe the problem was just in Judea. Maybe as Jesus moves into Galilee, he'll be received there. Because Galilee is his patris. That's the Greek word for hometown or more broadly his homeland, right? The, The land of his fathers. This is where he comes from. Going back to Galilee 
It's like putting on a pair of old house shoes, you know? It just fits. So maybe Jesus will be received there, honored there. You know, he's, he's the hometown hero. He left, now he's coming back, a big shot prophet, doing a whole bunch of big things in Jerusalem, doing miracles, shaking up the establishment. Obviously chosen by God for something big and important. Won't he be received with honor? Well, not exactly. Look at verse 44. This is after he departs for Galilee. John tells us why he does so. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. There are a lot of reasons why a prophet may be without honor in his hometown. We're not going to get into that this morning. What I want us to see this morning is that as Jesus is leaving Samaria, the land of the half-breed heretics, where he should receive no honor but receives all the honor, he's going into Galilee where he should receive an abundance of honor but will be found without honor. That's the first point of contrast I want you to see in this morning's sermon. Point number two, the second point of contrast. Welcoming, and if you're taking notes, put air quotes around that. Welcoming versus welcoming. Look at verse 45. (coughs) So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. Now, if you're even halfway paying attention, maybe some alarm bells are going off. I literally just told you that Jesus is going to be received in Galilee without honor, right? That's what verse 44 said. He has no honor in his own hometown. Then we get to verse 45, and the text says that the Galileans welcomed him. And you might be thinking, well, Sean, that sure seems like honor to me. And my response to you would be like, yeah, it sure does seem like honor. But it is not honor. Welcoming is not the same thing as honoring, not at least in the way that John writes. So let me show you what I mean. Do you remember back in John chapter 2? In, in the beginning of John's gospel, we began to see this consistent thread of people who believe but don't really believe. Right? So that, that can be crowds, it can be individuals, but their belief is suspect. They say they believe, but then their actions later prove that they don't truly believe. They believe in things like signs and wonders, and they get really excited about them. But they don't actually believe in Jesus in a way that can save. You might say that they tend to believe in Jesus' abilities, but they reject his identity. Let's go back and look at that. Flip with me back to John chapter 2. I just want you to see it in the text in case it's been too long. We're going to start in verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So hopefully reading that jogs your memory about our sermon in John chapter 2. The people believed in Jesus, but Jesus didn't believe in their belief. 
He knew what was in the heart of man. He knew that their hearts were fickle and excitable and more easily focused on what he could do than who he was. The same thing is true of this morning's text. John wants you to see that the only reason the Galileans welcomed Jesus is because he's the miracle worker guy. Go back to chapter 4, verse 45. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, and then John does this on purpose right after that, having seen, so why do they welcome him? Well, because they've seen all that he has done in Jerusalem at the feast. Remember when he was performing all the miracles? Yeah, they were excited and excitable. It's him. It's the miracle-working guy. And so what John wants us to see here is that the people welcoming Jesus in Galilee are not truly welcoming him. Their honor is not true honor, just like their belief when they were in Jerusalem was not true belief. They welcome him as the miracle worker, as the signs and wonders guy. But they're not welcoming him like the Samaritans did. Do you remember what happened when Jesus showed up in Samaria? He didn't embark on a massive miracle campaign. Now, he did tell the woman at the well about herself. That was a miracle, but it was a private miracle. There were no public miracles, no obvious signs or wonders, and yet the people of Samaria were spiritually hungry and thirsty. And so they brought Jesus into the town, ostensibly to preach and teach. You can see that in verse 40, excuse me, going back to chapter 4, verse 41. Look back there just one more time. It says, and many more believed because of his word. They didn't believe in signs and wonders. They believed in what he was saying to them. So consider this for a moment. There there are two kinds of uh, hometown heroes. The first is what I like to call the ordinary hero. The ordinary hero is the guy who leaves for college or maybe the military. He's gone for several years, comes back, and when he comes back, he comes back in much the same way that he left. You know, he's just the same old guy, just regular old Joe, humble, hardworking. You know, he's got his flaws and foibles just like everyone else does, but we know him and we love him and he's here with us. And he maybe goes back to his old house or buys and builds a new one, but he gets a job, he works hard, joins the Rotary Club, if this was like 50 years ago, serves as a deacon in the church, You know, he just, he earns the love and respect of the people in the community by just being there and being a good, upstanding citizen. Just an ordinary hero, you know? Then there's the celebrity hero. The celebrity hero is the guy who leaves town and becomes famous. A real big shot. This could be an athlete or an author, a musician or a movie star. It's just someone who leaves their hometown in the rear view and then makes it big and then comes back to town after they blow up. Think about how most of these celebrity heroes are welcomed when they finally do come back home. They're immediately received with a kind of excitement, right? Like, hey, you're one of us. And because you're famous, it's kind of like we're famous. Oh, man, it's so great to have you home. There may be a parade in honor. I mean, I guess, again, if this was like 50 years ago, you know, there's my nostalgia showing. Or there maybe there would be like a bridge named after him or, 
you know, maybe there would be like, his name would be put under the, the, the sign of the town, you know, now entering Rust Belt City, USA, you know, home of so-and-so, and it'd be right there under the sign, and that would be their way of trying to honor him. There's a sense of joy and excitement at first, but this usually tends to be superficial, and this superficial joy is usually paired with a kind of feigned familiarity, right? Like, hey, you remember me? I'm uh, Johnny from Miss Feldman's class in ninth grade biology. Man, didn't we have the best time uh, back in Miss Feldman's class? Weren't we best buds? No. <laughs> this warmth and familiarity, however, seldom lasts. People may love the celebrity hero at first when they think that, this, that the hero's success and fame and wealth will translate into something beneficial for them. But the hype of the celebrity hero rarely lives up to the hopes and the expectations of the townspeople, which are usually selfish and self-serving. And when the, when the hometown hero, the celebrity hero, doesn't automatically wrap the town up in his fame and glory, when the wealth isn't spread around like they think it should be, when they feel cheated, like, hey, you're not doing enough for the people that you know and for the place where you came from. Well, then the celebrity hero is just another big shot. Just another person that everyone around here knows ain't really all that special and who ran off to the city and got a big head. This trope is a familiar one. You've probably seen it in a number of movies. And Jesus knows about it. Jesus understands the idea of the celebrity hometown hero, and he's not going to be taken in by it. He knows that although he may at first be received in his homeland of Galilee with a hero's welcome, he knows that the affections of the people will soon fade. Love for the celebrity hero rarely lasts, and Jesus knows that. Now let's go to verses 46 and 47. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So, apparently, once Jesus arrives to where he's going to be in Galilee, the city of Cana, an official, who's pretty important, we'll come back to that in a minute, official who has a sick son, he hears about Jesus. And this official, he's desperate to save his son. He's caught wind that this Jesus guy, this miracle worker who was down in Jerusalem doing a whole bunch of crazy stuff, he caught wind that he is in Cana. So this guy is in Capernaum. He's in Cana, which is in walking distance. It's, it's a long walk, but it's within walking distance. And so he's, he leaves Capernaum and he goes down to Cana to see if Jesus can help him with his sick son. The official pleads with Jesus to have him come with him and heal his son. And we read Jesus' response in verse 48. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now something very interesting is happening here with what Jesus says to this man. And you, you can't really see it in the English. We're, we're not the church that's like every other week, you know, if you only knew Greek, then you could really understand the Bible. But if you, if you could read Greek, you'd see something else going on here, okay? Jesus is talking to this man, to this royal official, but he's also speaking in the plural. 
So when he says in verse 48, unless you see signs, he's saying you all. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. So most commentators think that Jesus is saying this to the official in the presence of the Galileans. This is a public event. And so although Jesus is speaking to this man, he's using it opportunistically to speak to everyone else there who only loves him because he's the miracle guy. And he says, you won't believe, will you? All you Galileans, unless you see a miracle. We're going to come back to this official in a moment. We're going to look at him a little more. But for now, as we wrap up point number two, I want you to see even in this interaction with the official that Jesus views the Galileans, that is the Jews, as only welcoming him with a kind of superficial honor. Point number three, our third point of contrast, the official versus the Galileans. Let's take a little closer look at this official. Who is he? What is his deal? First, let's take uh, the term official. In the Greek, this is actually a little bit more of a technical term than just official. It usually could be rendered royal official, and it's often used to refer to people who serve in the king's court. So who could this royal official be serving? Well, the text says that he traveled from Capernaum down to Galilee. Now, you don't spend all your time studying biblical history, but I kind of do, so I'll tell you about it. Capernaum was a place where Herod Antipas, King Herod, who would later behead John the Baptist, he had his castle, his domain, his setup, his headquarters right there in the city of Capernaum. So it seems like this man is a servant of King Herod. Now, what does that mean? It means that this guy is a pretty big deal. And I want us to think about that for a second before we move on. I want us to think about the way that Jesus interacts with this high official of the king in this scenario. We're going to see a little bit later that this servant is not only powerful because he's connected to the kings, but he's also wealthy, and those two things tend to go hand in hand, right? We see that later because he has servants who meet him on the road. So he works for the king and he has servants. He's a big deal. And Jesus sends him packing. He says, Jesus, please come, come with me to Capernaum. And Jesus says, uh, no, I'm not going to do that. He says it twice. He says it first in verse 48, kind of a rebuke slash challenge. We're going to come back to that. And then he says it finally in verse 50. You can see that. In verse 50, he says no, but he gives him a gift even as he does. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. So he says, I'm not going to go with you, but I will heal your son. Now, remember that the townspeople in Samaria, they asked Jesus to stay with them. And he said yes. He interrupted his travel plans to stay with the, Samarian, the Samaritans. The, the lowlifes, the, the half-breeds, the heretics, the nobodies, the, the lowly things of this world. He altered his plans, inconvenienced himself to stay with them. What could they offer him? Nothing. What could they do for him? Nothing. Here comes this highfalutin official from the court of the king, and he says, please come with me back to Capernaum. And Jesus says, no. 
I want us to see something about the, the character of Jesus here, and therefore the character of God that we see all throughout the rest of Scripture, namely, that God is no respecter of persons. Peter realizes this in Acts 10, and he has to shout it from the rooftop. God shows no partiality. He doesn't show partiality to the poor. He doesn't show partiality to the rich. But sometimes in the Bible, it seems like especially not towards the rich. He doesn't show partiality to the weak or partiality to the powerful, but especially not to the powerful. The fact that this guy is a royal official seems kind of irrelevant in Jesus' calculus of how he's going to handle this situation, which is kind of amazing to me. Just stop and think about it. This man is two things. He is desperate and he is powerful. And that is a dangerous combination. Do you guys remember who put John the Baptist to death? Right? It was Herod, Herod Antipas from Capernaum, this man's boss. And if maybe you remember from the rest of your time reading the Bible that someone later does get in Herod's ear, and then after that happens, Herod puts that, uh, someone to death, John the Baptist. So Herod is malleable. He is influenceable. People can get in his ear and get him to do evil things on their behalf. Jesus knows that. It doesn't move him. Do you guys remember the movie John Q? Man, it, it feels like it was a new movie, but it's not. It's really old. It's like over 20 years old. It has Denzel Washington, amazing. And uh, in this movie, his son has a heart defect. And he needs a heart transplant, but he's denied a heart transplant, right? So John Q goes in and he takes over the hospital and he forces the, the people there to do the surgery and we're reminded in that movie that desperate men are dangerous desperate men with power are especially dangerous but that doesn't seem to register with Jesus on the flip side this man could have also used his authority to do great good to Jesus you know men in this kind of position are not shy about repaying one kindness for another tit for tat quid pro quo, you know. Listen, if you come down and help me heal my son, you know, I can do you a lot of good. Jesus could have even used this man as a pawn in his political game. Remember, the Pharisees are not happy with Jesus. The reason why Jesus left Judea and went up to Galilee is because there was such a hubbub stirring amongst the Pharisees, there was so much hostility with the Pharisees that he had to like make a move. We're going to see next week that the Pharisees are, they're just like right around the corner from trying to kill Jesus. That's how thick the tension is between Jesus and the religious leaders. And Jesus could have used this man as a pawn in his political game. You know, hey, you use your power to protect me from the Pharisees, and I'll use my power to heal your son. But he doesn't do that. It seems like Jesus is not at all interested in what this official can do to him or for him. He's aiming at something else entirely. We'll come back to that in point number four. Now, th there's one more contrast I want us to see here between the official and the Galileans. And you should know at the outset, I, this is not absolutely provable 100% because it's just not right there in the text. But I think it's true, so I want to argue for it. I think that this contrast is once again a Jew-Gentile contrast. I think that this official 
is a Gentile. And if he's not a Gentile, he is at least considered to be a Gentile. I'll explain what I mean. So he is from the court of Herod Antipas. Now, Herod Antipas was the son of Herod the Great. And if you know anything about the Herods, and I know you do, Herod the Great was an Ebionite. And if you know anything about Ebionites, and I know you do, then you know that they were ethnically Arab, right? And uh, Herod the Great, he came over to be Tetrarch of, of, of Galilee and with the Jews. And when he did that, he professed to be a Jew. But that was more than likely just political acting, you know? Because the Jews, they're not big fans of having foreign pagan people rule over them. So one of the easiest ways that you can keep the Jews calm as Rome sends you in to control them and rule them and govern them is just to be like, yeah, I'm a Jew. If that seems strange to you, just look at American politics, right? Oh, yes, I'm a Christian, and I'm a member of First Baptist Church of such and such, and we all go, oh, great, he's a Christian, right? Probably not. Now, Herod the Great, we know, we, I mean, we really know that he wasn't a true Jew. He did two things that are pretty big no-nos for Jews. One, he married a Samaritan woman. We saw that last week, right? Jews don't do that. And then number two, when the Jewish rebellions began a couple of generations before Jesus and the uprising commenced and they were trying to throw the shackles of Rome off of them in Israel, uh, Herod the Great helped Rome put down the rebellion and reinstitute Roman rule. So he was a tremendous traitor to the people of Israel. That was true of Herod the Great. And it's also true of Herod the Great's son, Herod Antipas, the Herod from this morning's text. And if Herod was a Gentile, then most likely this man serving in his court was a Gentile. Now you may be thinking, Sean, that's a bit of a stretch. That's fair. But here's what's not a stretch. Herod Antipas was viewed as an enemy of the people of God. He was viewed as a foreign oppressor in the land of Galilee, and his rule was seen as a rule of injustice against God's people. And an official in his court would have been viewed in the exact same way. He would have been viewed in the same light as a tax collector. You remember the tax collectors? These tax collectors were Jewish, and they were employed by Rome in order to rob God's people. You know, Rome was like, all right, we can't have our guys go in there. We'll have one of their own go in there. And so a Jew would do it. But all the Jews hated the tax collectors because they were traitors. They, they were sent in by the enemy to hurt their own people. Which is why in Matthew 18, Jesus says, when you excommunicate someone from the church, you should treat him like a Gentile or a tax collector. They're basically synonymous. The same thing is true of the official from Herod's court in this morning's text. So... Here he comes, this man in the same vein of the Samaritans, an enemy of God's people, approaching Jesus, asking for help. If this official son were not sick, he probably never would have thought twice about Jesus, you know? Just another religious wackadoo. But out of desperation, he goes to Jesus. Let's see how that goes for him. Point number four, the final contrast, wonder worship versus word worship. Go back and look at verse 48 yet again, okay? One more time. Talking to this official, this, this enemy of God's people, he says, 
unless you see signs and wonders, that's you people, but also talking directly to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. This verse almost functions as a challenge to the royal official, as a test. Jesus seems to be saying, are you like the rest of these people? Are you like the rest of the Galileans who only have a superficial kind of faith in me? Who only care about miracles? Or are you different? And then in verse 50, we see that the official is different. Go there. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Here's how the man is different. This official receives no obvious miracle from Jesus. Uh, To be clear, a miracle did take place, but he didn't know that. He couldn't believe it. He couldn't trust it. It's just a word that he receives. Jesus doesn't go with him. And he doesn't pull out a crystal ball and slap it down on the table and see like, ooh, look, you can see your son has been healed. There's none of that. He just gives him a word of promise. And the official believes the word of promise. Now look at verses 51 and 52. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. It must have been a long walk, about a day's journey between Cana and Capernaum. You have to think about everything that he's been through. His son is dying, right? He's desperate. He's so desperate that he goes to some supposed Jewish holy man who he's heard but has not seen can heal the sick. His initial journey is a long journey, and he is probably worried sick that entire time. Every footstep he takes, is my son going to die? while I am away trying to get this man? Will I be able to find this man? Then he finally does find the man, and he goes to him and has to prostrate himself in a way that is beneath the dignity of a royal official, and he says, will you please come back with me? Right? Will you work your magic over my son in person? And then Jesus refuses. But you persist, you know, you declare that you will not leave until your son has been healed. And then Jesus very kindly says, okay, your son will be healed. If you're in this official shoes, can you receive that? Can you believe it? Can you trust his word? Or do you stick around and try to tighten the screws on Jesus? Keep trying to apply the pressure until he comes back with you. Well, the man says, okay, I'll believe you. I'll take you at your word. I'll trust your promise. Then he begins this walk home. And if his faith is anything like my faith and your faith, it's probably half doubting, half hoping and believing, right? There's a mixture here of faith with all kinds of doubt mixing around in there with it. And then after a day's journey, the man's servants run up and meet him and tell him that his son has indeed been healed. And then, you know, he does a little mental, he says, "When, when was he healed? Then he does the math and he realizes, oh, that was exactly when Jesus said he was going to be healed. And then you'll notice something strange. 
at the end of verse 53. Look there. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And then it says, and he himself believed and all his household. Now if you've been paying attention, you know that the text already says that Jesus believed. Excuse me, that this man believed Jesus. But it says here again that he believed in light of this miracle. Well, what's going on here? Well, it seems like in the first instance, the man expresses belief in Jesus' ability. He says, I trust that you can actually heal my son. But then after his son is healed, it seems like the man expresses belief in Jesus' identity. The man not only trusts that Jesus can do things, but that he is who he says he is. What I really want us to see here in the fourth point of the sermon is the contrast between the wonder worship of the Galileans and the word worship of the royal official. In verse 48, we already saw Jesus told us that the Galileans only worship Jesus like all the people in Jerusalem worship Jesus just because he's the miracle guy. They worship the wonders that he can perform. You can even go back. Go to verse 48. If you're the kind of person who like annotates your Bible, get a pen or a highlighter or a marker and circle believe in verse 48 and then do what I have in my Bible here. Draw a little line over to wonders. Believe wonder. You see it right there. Then go in your Bibles to verse 50 and circle the word believe again. The man believed. But this time circle the word word. Keep that in your Bible so the next time you come back through John chapter 5, excuse me, John chapter 4, you can see the difference. The difference between the Galileans and this official. The Galileans worship the wonders of Christ. But this official trusts the word of Christ. And if, and if our hypothesis is true that this official really is a Gentile or an enemy of God's people, then it should strike us that he is less like the Galileans and more like the Samaritans. An enemy of God's people who nevertheless believes the word of the Lord. Now before we move on, I need to give you a quick word about miracles, about signs and wonders, because I don't want us to go crazy. I don't want us to take this too far. I don't want us to think that miracles don't matter or that wonders are worthless. You have to remember that the official here did receive a miracle from Jesus. A bona fide miracle. Not only that, but the confirmation of the miracle from the man's servants seems to be the thing that leads the man to saving faith. Friends, it's not the presence or absence of miracles that matter so much as the significance that we assign to them. Do we put them in a place of preeminence over the word of God? That's the question that's the difference. That's the contrast. The Jews are trusting in signs. But the official doesn't get a sign. He just gets a word. And even the word that he gets from his servants, attesting to the miracle, is still something that he has to take on faith. So, do signs and wonders matter? Yes. But Jesus wants us to make sure that our faith isn't resting in signs and wonders, but in the word of his promise. Now, uh, I want you to see that in all of John's gospel. This is a theme that's going to come up in all of John's gospel. 
And I could just kind of walk you from passage to passage and show you all of that like over and over again. But I think you're going to see that as we walk through it together over the next five years. But this morning, I actually want you to see it in the very thesis statement of John's gospel itself. Do you remember that? John's gospel has a thesis statement. It's in John chapter 20. Turn there with me. This is why John is writing his gospel. He tells us, why am I writing this? Well, this is why. Starting in verse 30. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, that is, these signs, the signs that are written in this book, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So why does John write the gospel? To tell you about miracles that Jesus performed so that you would Look at those miracles, perceive them, believe them, and be saved by what you learn about Christ in those miracles. So miracles matter. But here's what I want you to see. Before you can read this gospel and read about the miracles that Jesus performed, you have to believe that this gospel is the word of God. You have to believe that this book is from God. You have to believe that it is the Word. Only when you believe that it's the Word can you read about the miracles within it and trust them and receive them. If you think that this is just a book written by a man, there's no reason to believe anything that's in it. But if you think that God wrote this book, if you think that God inspired John to write this as Holy Scripture, and if you can receive that, well then you can receive the miracle. John expects you to believe in the miracles of Jesus, but first you have to believe in his word so that you can believe in his miracles. Now I have three points of application I want to give you. We kind of walk through the text, we see what's going on there theologically. Let's try to dig in a little bit as to how this really applies to our lives. Number one, uh, first point of application Beware of the felt needs gospel. Beware of the felt needs gospel. You have to understand that the Jews are not merely excited about Jesus' miracles because, you know, they're like kids at like a magic show, you know. They're not just excited that they're going to see something spectacular. Most of the people are excited because they have something that they need a miracle for. Remember what happens in in the Gospels. Wherever Jesus goes somewhere, there are people who meet him who are demon-possessed, who are sick, who desperately need help. We're going to see this in next week's text. There's a person who's an invalid for 38 years. These are the kinds of people who are excited about Jesus coming. They need something from him. But Jesus says, that's not how I want to be received. I don't want you to want me only because you believe that I can do something for you. That should make a lot of sense to us, right? Like, you don't want to be wanted just because of what someone can do for you. You don't want to have a friendship with someone where you think that they're only your friend because you have the ability to help them in some way. You want them to to be your friend just because they like who you are. You don't want to be in a romantic relationship with someone because they think you can give them something that they want. 
You want them to love you because of who you are. Well, if that's true of you, it's true of God. God wants to be wanted because of who he is. Jesus wants people to believe in him, not because they think he can meet some need that they think that they have, but because they actually believe in his identity. Now, let me be clear. Jesus can meet every single need that we have. He can also meet the needs that we don't even know that we have. But when we love Jesus primarily because of what he can do for us, our love is not true. Faith that believes in Jesus just to get something from Jesus is not the kind of faith that Jesus is seeking from his followers. Jesus wants to be worshipped because of his identity and his abilities. So let me ask you this morning. Are you just here because you think that Jesus can do a miracle for you? Or are you coming to him because of who he is? Because he is lovely and amazing and holy and glorious and sovereign and beautiful and utterly worthy of our worship. Is that why you're here? Or is it because you're hoping to get something from him? Maybe a good test you can ask yourself in your heart to see if you've been misguided in your approach to worshiping Christ is this. If you worship Jesus and he doesn't do what you want him to do, if he doesn't meet the need that you, you think that he should meet in your life, if you worship him and he doesn't do that, will you still worship him? If he doesn't give you the miracle, it's not at all uncommon for Jesus to leave people without a miracle. You see it all throughout the Gospels. Jesus will go to a place, he'll preach, he'll heal, he'll cast out demons, but then he'll be like, oh, it's time to go. I need to go preach the Gospel in another town. And the people will be crying out, please help us. And Jesus goes and he leaves them without a miracle. Let me ask the question more pointedly, or state it more pointedly. Friends, you need to know that Jesus does not always heal our children or our parents or our spouse or our friends or us or our marriage or our addiction. That doesn't mean that he can't. It's true that in this morning's text, the Lord does heal the official son. But he doesn't always do that. And you should know that he is under no obligation to do that. Do not believe the lies of the TV preachers who say that God is obligated to heal us because of who he is or because of what was done on the cross. He is under no obligation. The only person who is under any obligation is you and me. We are under obligation to worship the Lord in spirit and truth, to honor and to glorify God. Whether he loves us by doing something miraculous for us, or he loves us by letting us experience loss. You know, glorifying God when you lose everything may be the greatest miracle of all. Second application point. 
Your miracle is not your own. Your miracle is not your own. Look at verse 53 again. Turn back to John chapter 4. At the end of verse 53, after he, the miracle has been confirmed, it says, And he himself believed, and all his household. Well, how did his entire household believe? Well, I think the most normal way to understand this is that the man goes back to his household. Everyone there knows about, our boss's son was sick. He's healed. What has happened? The official comes back and says, I'll tell you what happened. Jesus of Nazareth is what happened. The Messiah is what happened. This guy's the savior of the world. All the rumors are true. He's not a fake. He's not a phony. He has the power of heaven. And so his, his people believe him. They, they trust his word as he goes back and reverberates the word of Christ out to his people. This should draw you back to last week's text. The woman at the well receives a miracle from Jesus then she understands his identity, right? And then what does she do? She goes back to the townspeople and she tells everyone about that. And they listen to her word. She reverberates the word of Christ out. That's what this man is doing. Except instead of doing it to the townspeople, he does it to his household. Friends, if God does something miraculous for you, it is not meant for your private enjoyment and pleasure. It is meant for the glory of God among the nations. So if you have a child that gets saved, or a healing take place, or if God resurrects your marriage, or your marriage is already ruined, but then God brings you someone else and gives you the amazing miracle of a good marriage, or if you have a testimony that is miraculous, whatever your miracle is, and by the way, every one of us has a testimony that is miraculous, whatever your miracle is, it is not your own. It is meant to be shared with the world, with your friends, your family, your coworkers, your fellow church members. These things happen to us so that we can brag on God, so that we can boast in his power, so that his name will be hallowed in the earth. And then the final subpoint: an exhortation. Be desperate. We have to be clear that what happened in this morning's text with this royal official was a crisis. A crisis is what brought this man to the feet of Jesus. God used the terrible fear and pain and anxiety of the potential death of his son to lead this man away from trusting in himself. A wealthy, powerful Man and ancient, how easy is it to trust in your status or your power or your wealth? It's too easy. It's, it's the default setting. God had to break him down, humble him, bring him low, make him desperate in order to get him to the feet of Jesus. And I wouldn't be surprised if God is doing the very same thing in some of your lives this morning. Maybe there's some big trauma in your life, some major incident that's happened, something that's crushing you with anxiety or fear 
or depression. Something that's leaving you feeling helpless and sleepless. Maybe you feel loveless and friendless. Maybe you're jobless. I don't know what it is, but it wouldn't surprise me if someone here in this room this morning is listening to this sermon because God has been trying to humble you and bring you to the feet of Jesus through your brokenness. God does that kind of thing. And maybe you're here this morning because God wants to do a miracle for you, the greatest miracle of all, saving you. You know, there's something really fascinating about the miracle of salvation. The miracle of salvation is so amazing because it's a miracle that we can actually partake in. You know, God, of course, he's the master of the miracle. He's the one doing all the work behind the scenes. You know, he's, he's bringing us here. He's ordering our lives. He's working in our hearts. He's communicating his word. He's showing us our need. He's making us desperate. All that's true. That's God being the master of the miracle. But at the end of the day, you have to believe. You have to turn from your sin, and you have to trust in Jesus. You have to believe his word. Now, if you're like me and you didn't grow up in the church, or you didn't pay attention to what you were hearing when you did grow up in the church, you may be wondering, Sean, well, what is it exactly that I need to believe in order to be saved, in order to receive this miracle? Well, it's, it's right here in your handouts. We have it here every week on the back on purpose. It's, it's the word of the gospel. I'm going to read it to us again this morning because we never get past the gospel. What is this word? It's this. The gospel is the joyous declaration that God is redeeming the world through Christ and that he commands everyone everywhere to repent from sin and to trust Jesus Christ for salvation. Each of us has sinned against God. Breaking his law and rebelling against his rule and the penalty for our sin is death and hell. But because of his love, God sent his son Jesus to live for his people's sake, the perfect, obedient life that God requires, and to die on the cross in our place for our sin. And on the third day, Christ rose bodily from the grave and now reigns in heaven, offering forgiveness, righteousness, resurrection, and eternal blessedness in God's presence to everyone who repents of sin and trusts solely in him for salvation. If you're in this room this morning, you have heard the word of Christ. Will you believe in it? Or will you leave here searching for another sign? Let's pray. Father, we trust that your spirit is alive and active, working in the hearts of those who belong to you to lead us to repentance and to greater holiness and sanctification. And Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who has been freshly confronted by the reality of your lordship and your goodness and your love, and if they've been brought low by their circumstances, we pray that you would draw them to yourself right now. Lord, love them 
and save them. Let us love them and serve them. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.